You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So, we are going to wrap up our time in the book of Nehemiah, more more accurately, our time in, in the combined book in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so we are going to be in the 13th chapter. We'll be beginning in the fourth verse. And it's the final section in the book of Nehemiah. And, and as you're making your way there, I want to draw your attention to a couple of things. If you don't have a Bible or a device that will get you there, I want to invite you to join us. But, but if, if you don't have that, that, that's okay. There's probably a paperback Bible that's in the, the tray underneath the chair in front of you. We want to invite you to have that. that make that our gift to you. Don't be afraid of the table of contents. There's a lot of books and pages in the Bible. Don't be, don't be afraid to, to, to be kind of navigating that way. Otherwise, again, Google and any device will help you get there. But this is the last chapter in the book of Nehemiah. And similar to our trek through the prophet, the minor prophet Malachi last year, this takes place post-exile. That is, in the story of the Bible, God's people have been delivered from bondage. They've been granted the promised land to where they're to be God's special people for his special purpose in the world, a a blessing, if you will, to the whole world. They rebel against him, and and God lovingly disciplines them by allowing the, the Babylonians at that time to scatter them. As the Persians take over, they're, they're invited by, by God's grace and some miraculous works through Persian pagan kings to be invited back to their promised land, to the city they love, the, the city of Jerusalem, to rebuild it, to reform it, to reconstruct its, its, its temple and its altar, as well as, for the story of Nehemiah, its walls. And so this is a story of rebuilding. We've described it this way. as a, It's a story of renewal. Kind of the, the climax of, of Ezra and Nehemiah you find in the ninth chapter is Ezra begins to institute some reforms. He says, but now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. And so this story is about God's grace allowing them to have another shot in, in the place where they had previously experienced discipline. They had experienced brokenness and destruction. And so, like our trek through the book of Malachi, which by most accounts is the last book of the Old Testament, not only in order, but in that sense chronologically, this fits into that time frame of of Malachi, of Zephaniah, and Haggai, who were quoted in Ezra and Nehemiah. And so we see Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, Malachi, Zephaniah, and Haggai, in that sense, the last books of the Bible, the last inspired words of God before four centuries, before what we celebrate as Christians across history and across the world as the advent, the coming of Jesus to be with us and for us. And so this story of renewal, a restoration that takes place, is an invitation, I believe, for the couple of questions we've been asking since the beginning. I hope we don't stop, but, but think of it as this, uh, an intentional reminder of what this story is about. Where do you want or need to experience renewal? Where in your life would you admit that you are cold, unforgiving, discontent? Where in your life would you find yourself without optimism, without hope, without trust in all these places that are hardened and cold and dark, I want to encourage you. These aren't meant to be questions that evoke shame. 
right? Like shame on you for that. But instead, these are meant to be the kinds of questions that God, our loving Father, asks because he delights to give his children these, these desires of their heart. And so hopefully at some point, maybe, maybe up to this point, like the beginning of Nehemiah, your answer to that question is, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you're like Nehemiah in a season of weeping and fasting and wondering how on earth God can make things right again. And I, I want to tell you that you're, you're in a sacred place. That is, a, that is not a, a same thing. It's not a place of shame or condemnation, but, but instead that, that often is where renewal starts. It starts by lamenting what's broken. It starts by acknowledging that if God doesn't come and heal some of this stuff, then it's going to stay broken. It's going to stay destitute. But hopefully, if this isn't the question you've been able to ask or, or begin to answer as a group over the last couple of months, then maybe it will be. And the second question is then, where are you currently experiencing renewal? Ezra and Nehemiah are a story of renewal that invites us to be a people that regularly rehearse our own experience of renewal. We're in constant need of it. And so I've been so encouraged by, by stories, even in my own gospel community, as well as some of that we've shared on a Sunday. And I want to encourage you to, to take those as examples to follow, that we would be a people that rehearses stories of God's restoration and renew, renewal. After all, that's what it means. I want to invite you to consider to be a Christian, to have acknowledged the brokenness caused by sin, and to have begun to experience the renewal and revival, the new life and new hope that we find in Jesus. So Nehemiah, along with Ezra and Zerubbabel, who got a big chunk of Ezra but didn't get a book named after him, serve for us as a storyline, a storyline with many different themes. And I want to acknowledge even at the outset of our last time in Nehemiah, what I, I try to acknowledge every time we wrap up a series, I feel kind of a grieving, like, oh my goodness, there's all, I, I end up with like, 50, like an extra 50, 60 pages of notes, and I'm like, what do I do with all these? And many of you are like, you keep them, right? Um, so, but I want to share with you, if there has been any insight, if there has been any sort of like helpfulness on, on, on my part, in this, in this entire series, I want to commend to you that is likely not original with me. And so I want to commend to you there's many resources that I lean on to, to hopefully guide us through this. And if you have more questions like, hey, where'd you get that or where'd that come from? I would love to, to, to resource you and equip you as best I can uh, to begin to see some of those things. I even saw there was uh, about in, in Nehemiah chapter four, I believe it was. Uh, I was like reading some notes from a Nehemiah sermon uh, that I heard um, some 15 years ago. And so I, I want to commend to you, these are simply, hopefully my own passing off of, of good and godly things and resources, and I would love to answer any questions you may have and resource you as best as possible, because I've certainly not said everything that could be said, but I hope I have been able to say something that's instructive or encouraging. And so the storylines that converge in Ezra and Nehemiah are something I believe we can relate to. That is, the needing of renewal because they've returned back from exile to a place that they knew was not going to go back to the way it was. And so storylines that we ought to be able to relate to are latest. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah is the story of a people that feels like outcasts, like they don't belong. Have you ever been there? But it's a story about homecoming after being tremendously homesick. Ever been there? It's about knowing in many ways that there's no going back to the way things were. Have you ever been there? And yet it's about how God interacts with a disoriented people who are homesick, welcomes them back into his very presence. Also, practically, this story of renewal is a story of leadership. 
we'll even see some of that instruction and, and example today as, remember, as we saw as, as description, not necessarily prescription, but these storylines come together to even teach us about human nature, about repentance, about fresh starts, and about God's patience for us. So I want to conclude our time together, beginning in verse 4. We'll read through the entirety of the last chapter. As Nehemiah institutes these final reforms, as these people are reconstituted, as a renewed and holy and set-apart people experiencing God's presence, even if only as a remnant on the earth. Beginning in verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon the first, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites. And as Shelemiah the priest, excuse me, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mathaniah, for they were considered reliable. And their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing? Profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened 
until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on a Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. And those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times, and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Substitute teachers bring chaos. Yes, I heard some amens there, that's right. Substitute teachers bring chaos. Now, maybe you're a substitute teacher and you're the exception to that rule. Either way, the exception proves the rule. Even I can remember some substitute teachers that maintained control and kept us on course. But most of the time, and I would encourage you to even share some of these stories, right? As when the cat is away, the mice will play. Substitute teachers, when they step in, are, are in many ways targets for people who want power, who want to take advantage of the situation, they, they want to fill the vacuum with the sound of their own chaos. And substitute teachers often just bring chaos. God help them. In many ways, they're just set up for that. No one teaches students this, right? It's not written anywhere. I've never even heard a student say that. Like, oh, hey, there's a substitute teacher today. Let's go crazy, right? Let's, let's make them miserable. Let's assume they don't already have a difficult life and let's make one for them, right? I've never heard anyone say this. And yet everyone who's been a part of a school that has had a substitute teacher step in for the real teacher, no, that's not right. That's, I mean, I apologize. You substitute teachers, you're a real teacher. I didn't, see, I didn't, I didn't, it's, it's built in. I don't even know where this comes from. 
No one taught me that. But everyone's had this experience that the substitute's teacher steps in. It's chaos. And you want to take advantage of the situation. And so the final reforms of Nehemiah, if you caught that, took place in a similar way. Nehemiah, he tells us a few verses in, was out. Remember at the very beginning, he had gotten permission from the king to go and serve as a governor to help lead these reforms and rebuild the walls. And, and like, a good, like you would hope any good employee would, would get as, the, as a cupbearer to the king, the king and his wife were like, hey, okay, when are you going to come back? And so he instituted reforms, rebuilt the wall, and then evidently left and some 12 years later returns for his kind of second tenure as a governor. And in the time that he's away, as he was returning to his first, his first job as a cupbearer to the king, all of this chaos took place. And just like, I would argue, the, a substitute teacher might learn is that people, without the presence of someone they acknowledge as their leader, or in this case, governor, resort to chaos, kind of resort to the most base human instincts. And so the first governorship of Nehemiah, you can go back to chapter 5 if you'd like, lasted about 12 years. And most of that work happened right away in the first year or more. And so he returned to Susa, the place where he was sent from. And he was simply, in that sense, keeping his word to the king that he made in chapter 2. And he put some other people in charge until he was able to return. And what we see here are at least four places, four sections here that Nehemiah had to come back and confront that had gone crazy, had gone wild while he was gone. And when he returns to Jerusalem, Nehemiah is appalled for the second time in this particular book, it, we find that he's angry. He's visibly angry. And then he resorts to, what I, I mean, some pretty extreme things to express the severity of the situation. And yet, for the sake of these spiritual well-being, the, the people's spiritual well-being, he carries out a series, four, in fact, outlined here, of spiritual reforms. Now, notice, up to this point, these are all, if you'll remember in chapter 8, 9, and 10, public commitments that they've all made. But I want you to pay attention to verse 4. And we'll kind of wrap up our time in Nehemiah contemplating this. Now, up to this point, you've probably heard me say this, but the, the narrative of Ezra and Nehemiah is confusing chronologically. And I share with you that just like James Joyce or like Quentin Tarantino, the, the nonlinear nature of the narrative is meant to prove a point. It's meant to draw your attention to something. If nothing else, it kind of disorients you for the passage of time to see something else that's happening that maybe didn't happen in order. And so we just ended on what was clearly the climax of Ezra and Nehemiah, the celebration of this completion of this renewal and restoration project. And, and then they committed, they dedicated the wall as if the capstone of this whole project, they dedicated it and celebrated around. And you would think that's the happy ending. At the end of chapter 12, there, maybe if this was a Western author, they probably would end somewhere here like, and they lived happily ever after. But then we find out, no, the ending isn't that pretty. But we're left with a strange little thing. Is it really the ending? Is it really the end of the story? And so look, there it says, now before this. 
Now, this leaves us and commentarians confused, right? So we're like, here's the end. It's a celebration of God's restoration. Oh, by the way, I have one more story. Before that happened, and then what we find are the next 27 verses of reforms. And we don't know. Did they take place before this capstone celebration and dedication of the wall? Or did they take place right in the middle? And we're meant to be in some ways disoriented by the passage of time. Because as I shared with you before, the the narrative as it's told in Ezra and Nehemiah is less about chronology and most significantly about theology. That is, the story is told not so much that you will know the sequence of events, but the story is told in such a way so that you would know the character of God as he interacts in restoring his people. And so this story has a, has, a difficult under, like has a difficult kind of narrative with respect to time. In many ways, it's hard to follow. It's hard for us to kind of get our minds around. And so in that sense, we're not really sure if that's really the ending or not. But, but at, the, at the very least, we'll take Nehemiah seriously, is that this is the story he wanted us to hear last. This is the note Nehemiah wanted to end on. Namely, these people, in the midst of experiencing renewal and revival, resorted to desecrating some of the very things God had blessed them with. And so I want you to see one of the first things that, that I think we're meant to see throughout the story of Nehemiah is that renewal and holiness, supposed to be an and there, forgive me, renewal, maybe that's a new term, renewal holiness. After all, they are inseparable. Uh, <laughs> Not even with a conjunction. <laughs> Welcome. Yeah. This is what you get. I are English. Renewal and holiness are inseparable. Now let me unpack this for just a moment. The, the concept of holiness quite literally just means to be set apart. It just means to be different from. And so God is described as holy. That's one of the most prominent characteristics ascribed to the character of God throughout the the whole of the Bible. It's one of the first things we're introduced to understand about God, and therefore his people also reflect him as holy all the way to the end. Well, that's what we will praise God for forever and ever. God is holy. He is set apart. He's different from anything. And that is for us to be hope that, that God isn't fickle and unfaithful like you and I. God doesn't betray and, and God isn't, isn't unworthy of trust like you and I often can be. God is holy and perfect and righteous. And so then his people, made in his image and reflecting his character to the world, are also holy. That is, they're set apart. They're distinct. In many ways, that has been the literal story of Ezra and Nehemiah. That is, what are they celebrating the completion of in this story of renewal? But a rebuilding of the wall. Right? If you want to separate yourself from people, build a wall, right? Like live in a gated community. I mean, go ahead right now, just see if the city will let you, but just build a wall around your house, right? A big wall. Nothing says, like, we, hey, there, there's, there's space here between you and I, like a wall. And this had a, again, theological purpose that the world would see that this people set apart by God's purposes are distinct. They're not like everyone else. And yet, what is their temptation? What is the thing they long to do more than anything else but to fit in with the world? And so they tend to just look like the world. And yet the story of renewal is a distinct way in which they are now separated, holy, the word we see here is consecrated even, 
set apart from the world. And I, I don't want to overlook this, but that is the theme of Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, that God's people just look different. They don't fit into the world. And I want to commend that to you. In many ways, if, if you're in this room and you're not a believer, this might be the thing I want to commend to you the most, is that believers in Jesus have experienced something in God that, that we can't turn back from. We've seen something we can't unsee. We've been changed. We've been, the language you'll hear us use, we've been born again by faith. And we can't go back to the way things were before we saw and beheld Jesus as he truly is. And I know if you're in this room and you're not a believer, I'm so encouraged that you're here. But here's what you probably have. You probably have a keen awareness of, of the hypocrisy of Christians with respect to that very thing. How often they tend to just act like everyone else. They tend to just blend in. And they may think they believe something different than the world, but they seem to fight just like everyone else in the world, right? They use the same tactics. They're just as opportunistic and self-serving at times. And so I want to commend this to you, the, the need for renewal, the need to, to be changed by what God has done for us such that we look different than the world. We have a new loyalty. We, we have a relationship with the creator of all things is an ongoing need. And renewal and the experience of holiness are inseparable. I say that because maybe in your own life, that answer to that first question, where do you want to experience renewal, new hope, new joy? I want, I want, to, I want to pause your, your thinking process. If, if we haven't already done this up to this point, you won't find that renewal like the rest of the world finds it. Ask yourself questions like this. What is the world like? What are, in general, people like? What has been your experience of people on the whole, how do people respond to things? Right, something I know some of our gospel community leaders and our staff has heard me say is like maturity is revealed uh, as well as loyalty, but maturity is revealed when you don't get what you want. Right? I mean, just walk across the lobby to Kids Connection and see the level of maturity when children don't get what they want. But our loyalty, the things we value the most, are revealed when we don't get what we want. And so think in terms of, like, what would it look like, ask yourself questions like, what would it look like to be set apart from the world in these things? So there are at least four areas I want to kind of run through and then make some conclusions, I think, tentatively about this chapter and about the whole of the book, and hopefully practically kind of give us a, a chart uh, for our path forward. So there's at least four sections here, and they all are quite repetitive. You'll see them set apart by the writer there's a pattern where there's a problem that's identified by Nehemiah. Secondly, he confronts them in some profound way, and then he enacts some sort of resolution, right? Starts some new pattern of being. And all four, this is how you'll know it, all four of those sections, those four different topics, are, are ended by a phrase. Did you hear it? A, a pause for personal prayer in which Nehemiah says, remember me, God, Right? Remember me, O Lord. And he says it in different ways, but all four of these topics, I believe, he, he points to here. And he concludes each section addressing these need for reform. And I think, in, in many ways, giving us an example to follow of what it means to live contending for renewal as a remnant and a, a, amongst a people that worship and love other things than the Creator. And there's four different topics here. First, he addresses what I'll describe as unholy relationships. Did you see that? They 
one of the themes of this entire book. If you want to, you can go back there with me, uh, but you can make your way back to Nehemiah chapter 4. In the first nine verses, we find an opposition to the work of renewal. And Nehemiah introduces us to some characters. He says, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of the brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews even doing? Will they restore the wall for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Then Tobiah the Ammonite, so now we've been introduced to the other character that's been showing up throughout the story of Nehemiah. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. They were apparently on a team, and he said, yes, what they're building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down that stone wall. And then Nehemiah prays, God, hear us, we're despised, turn back their taunt. Verse 6, they built the wall. And all the wall was joined together at half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But, verse 7, when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were, again, very angry. And then they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And so we prayed to our God to set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So this story of Sanballat and Tobiah has been going on since the beginning. They've shown up even in the very first couple of chapters. But once Nehemiah leaves, did you hear who got to move back into the temple? They cleared out the, that is the, the furnishings that they needed to to go about the practice of sacrificing and worshiping God and made a room, you see in verse 4, under the directive of Eliashib, the high priest, under his directive, it says he gave, he prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering. You see this unholy relationship, this unholy alliance It'd be, I don't know, it's hard to draw a parallel here. It'd be like the people of God, let's say like our church. And it'd be like if you came to find out that the money you'd been given that was supposed to go to missionaries and church planters and ministry here and beyond had been somehow squandered and used to remodel the place for someone who did not worship God and frankly wanted to kill us. You would wonder, like, oh, what's happening here? And so the end result, it says that because there, there was no contributions being collected and, and there was no uh, ability to, to begin to resource this ministry of, of sacrifice and this ministry of, of proclamation that God's people are, are shaped by God's steadfast love, instead what took place is those people had to go and do their own thing. They had to go get other jobs. And in their place was Tobiah. But it it shares with us something about this, verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God. you got to suspect at this point, um, there's a few substitute teachers. Eliashib, God help him, was one, right? And it says that Eliashib, who, who was in that sense appointed over the chambers of the house of God, it says he was related to Tobiah. 
Now, you'll see more of this in the last section. But evidently, the way that they had begun to intermarry with people who did not love and worship God started to affect their decisions. They began to have unholy relationships. Let me ask you, what's the premise for the relationships you have in your life? What's the basis upon which you welcome people into your life? I'm going to contend to you, uh, for you that, that, that as, as Christians, we're meant to live as a witness. And we're ambassadors that we represent in many ways as the church, an embassy of God's kingdom, such that we represent the interests of our king. And we represent the interests of that king in the world. And so we have, in, this, is the, this is our goal, that like, we have intentional relationships with people in the world that don't love and serve Jesus. And yet we want to, we in that sense, compel them and, and persuade. I, I want to introduce you to my king. He's amazing. He doesn't rule like the rest of the world. He doesn't send his subjects out to die for his political causes. He runs out in front of his subjects and dies in their place. And his kingdom's upside down. I want you to hear about this king. He's amazing. And so we live as missionaries, ambassadors, with a proclamation of the good news of our king. And so we're regularly interacting with the world. But I want to ask you, in light of that, are you, in that sense, an ambassador to God's kingdom? Or are you yourself being affected more by the kingdoms that are represented around you? What's the basis for your relationships? Think of about the most significant relationships you have in your own life. Maybe a top three, a top five, a top ten. And then just for a moment, do the work that Nehemiah is asking us to do. Ask yourself how that came about. What purpose do they serve? Do they fuel and encourage and reinforce the work of renewal? Do they fuel and reinforce your experience of of new hope in the world given to us by God? Do they unite you with the heart of God such that you live as a set-apart person? You have a set-apart joy that's otherworldly? Make no mistake about it, those relationships, what they had given themselves over to and invited into their life was a hindrance to renewal. And experiencing real renewal means that your relationships have a new basis. They have a new foundation. We act out of a place of renewal. Having received all that we need from God, we we then now move towards the world and overflow with the grace he's given us. Friend, I want to ask you, are your relationships based on a deficit in you? A need you feel you, you must meet with those relationships for, uh, for whatever it may be, maybe pleasure, for, for the, the curing of loneliness, to feel like you belong, or are you moving to the world out of the overflow of what God has granted to you? Because any relationships you have in your life based on a deficit is a desire to have a need met by the world or someone else that God alone can meet. And so, friend, beware. Those relationships might be good and godly and there for a reason, but if you're not moving toward them in such a way that you are ministering to and making much of the God of the universe who renews and restores and reconciles and redeems, then those relationships are creeping in and they are setting up shop. They're placing furniture in your life. 
Did you hear that? One of the main chambers that was meant to be a storeroom for the generous ministry of the people and the temple was overrun. It became, they basically remodeled it and Tobiah had just set up shop there and started living there. You've got to love Nehemiah. What's the first thing he does? Verse 8, again, second time we've seen this about Nehemiah. Very angry. And he throws out the furniture of Tobiah. What a beautiful picture of what holiness looks like. What a, a profound example of what holiness looks like. When all the things that are robbing you of life when all the things sucking your joy out from underneath you, when all the things that reinforce your hardness, coldness, and unforgiveness come back to your life to find that you've burned their couches. You're not welcome here anymore. You can sit outside. Unholy relationships. Here's the second thing. Not just unholy relationships were a, a need for renewal, but in this case, unholy finances. See there that all the things that were meant to be collecting for the ministry of the, the declaration that comes of God's atoning work and sacrifice, but the gathering for worship and praise. We saw a picture of that from the last few chapters. Verse 10, we find then um, these unholy kind of associations and relationships started to, in this sense, creep into even the way they ascribed value to things. So I also found that the portions of the Levites in verse 10 had not been given to them. So that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field, and I confronted the officials. Why is the house of God forsaken? I gathered them together, and I set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. Now we don't know much about how this happened, it might have been actually the good and prudent work of the people to say, hey, I'm not going to, this is what we hope, right? Uh, hey, we're not going to, we're going to stop, we're going to stop funding this, uh, this strange remodel project of this unholy man, Tobiah, living in our temple, right? Maybe that was why they were withholding. But either way, the confrontation that Nehemiah has here isn't with them, it's with, did you catch that? The leaders. It says in verse 11, he confronted the officials. So one of the I'll say this, we're kind of two through out of the four here, and I'll just point this out, that spiritual leadership is on behalf of the spiritual well-being of God's people. That is that what spiritual leaders ought to do ought to be on behalf of the spiritual well-being of people. Now, here's the thing. You and I often are not very good at seeing what's good and bad for our spiritual well-being. This is just a thing that we, we tend to think we already know. And God in his mercy puts people in our lives that help us to see that more clearly. And the people in your life and mine that have helped you see that, right? Just think, like, think of it this way. Has someone helped you learn something about yourself that you wish you hadn't known recently? And for just a moment, while you're tempted to be angry at that person, would you just join me? Be grateful for that person. That person helped probably lead you into a, a posture of needing renewal in a way that you, that you can't even imagine right now. After all, this is my hope for you. I, I hope, I mean, what, what good would it do you to sit around on any given Sunday and hear someone rant about their opinions? Even my hope is that like, as we open the Bible together, we let it speak, we experience the kind of renewal that we have seen over the last several chapters. I pray that you and I would live this out. 
And my, maybe you'll sit here and say, well, I'm not a leader, right? I don't believe that's true. Every single one of you has been entrusted with the care of something, whether it's over your own self, your own life, your own resources and your own time or, or your family or friends. You all have relationships that you have influence in. Like maybe you have a, a place of work or business. You have influence. Maybe you're not using it or maybe you're not even aware of it. Maybe someone can help you see that, but, but you have influence and you can use that influence like Nehemiah here to benefit people, not just their comfort in the world, but their spiritual well-being. So maybe I would ask you this way, who in your life looks up to you and how can you help lead them into renewal, benefit them, advocate for their spiritual well-being? So these unholy finances were that these people stopped giving generously to the mission of the temple. The the thing that they had publicly committed to do for God's glory in the world, to live distinctly, they completely stopped doing. Here's the third thing. Their unholy schedules. Verse 15. We saw this in the the previous chapters to this, but in those days I saw Judah, uh, in Judah, people treading the wine press on the Sabbath. And bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And then I warned them on that day when they sold food. So all the way to verse 18, we see a picture of these people had, had needed renewal because they had begun to have an unholy view of their own time. Now, I won't belabor this point because I went into it, I hope, hopefully, in, in detail last week and the week before, but our view of time reflects our view, again, of our priorities, what we love, what we worship, what we trust in. Our view of time reveals kind of how we understand the world. And so, even then, I would ask you this, what is the purpose of this day? Christians believe that this is the Lord's day. That this is a special day. In the Old Testament, the Sabbath would have been Saturday, the seventh, the final day, commemorating that God created the world, and just because God is good and God does stuff that's good, he rested. God wasn't tired. God's just good. Right? Think about it. Like God's like, you're going to need a day. I'm going to give you a day off, right? Not because I'm tired, because it's just going to be fun. And God looked around and was like, this is amazing. Look what, look what we get to enjoy together. And so our recognition of that Sabbath, that idea that like a day a week, we're meant to pause for a moment and commemorate God's goodness. Well, maybe you're in this room and you'll say, well, why don't we do it on the Sabbath anymore? That's a great question. Because some 2,000 years ago, on the first day of the week, that is Sunday, something amazing happened. On that third day, from the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus, he was brought to new life. And now we have quite, again, man, I'm just using this word more than I ever would want to, but we quite literally have a new view of Sabbath. We celebrate God's goodness, and it, it changed our view of time. We don't do that on a Saturday. We do it on Sunday. We call it the Lord's Day. So I'll ask that question again. What is this day for? What's the purpose of this day right now for you? What is it? What do you have to do? And for these people who had wandered and been enslaved, Sabbath was a rebellious act. Sabbath was a way to tell the slave masters, I'm doing nothing. I'm not enslaved anymore. And this is the day where you and I get to look around and say, I'm doing nothing. I am loved by God. I can rest and enjoy who God is. And we celebrate on the first day of the week what God accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. 
I don't have to do a thing. I just get to enjoy it. It's a gift I get to enjoy today. And so for them, their time revealed the places where they needed to experience renewal. They needed to experience reformation. I'll just give you one quick thing before I move on from this, but like, I feel this every Sunday, right? There's not a single Sunday morning um, where our family, loading up and making our way into this building, wrestles with something that kind of says, no, this is what day, today is about, right? I don't know what that is for you. Maybe you don't have to deal with that, right? Maybe you wake up on a Sunday morning and the alarm clock goes off and you're like, oh, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Like, maybe that's you. Um, we wake up on a Sunday morning and we feel the pressure of outside forces telling us all the things that a day is about. And we like to fight about it. I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that's what you like to do, but that's what we like to do. What we're going to wear, where we're going to sit, where we're going to eat, right? You hear it? And that may seem like a silly thing, but for some reason, it really grips our hearts. It really grips, like, it, it, it's like, man, this that's what we're going to do today. That's what we're going to fight about this today. And so that question that we see we're confronted with here is like, what is this day for? Is it possible that God has done something for you so amazing on this first day, that is Sunday, that it changes every Sunday that you live before, until Jesus gets back? Here's the last thing. They had an unholy view of family. Beginning in verse 19, it says, excuse me, that this, that starts in verse 23, I apologize. That's still a picture of them reinstituting the practice of commemorating God's goodness on the Sabbath. Beginning in verse 23, it says, In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. Now, again, remember, this, this isn't about the construct of race. This is about theology. This is These people set apart to worship God were meant to love and care for these people so that they would be a people set apart as God worshipers, people who worship the creator, the God of the universe. And so for them to intermarry was to entertain believing something else. For them to marry other people who did not believe in God was to entertain the possibility that maybe God isn't good and his purposes for us aren't really that great. And so, verse 25, he confronted them and cursed them. And uh, he beat some of them. I just love it. Just goes right past that. Just beat some of them. I even pull out their hair. Okay. <laughs> uh, side note here: this is the same thing, same kind of point. I would I would push to you when we were at uh, when we were looking at the the picture of them rebuilding the the walls, and it said that some of them were working at the same time. Some of them were carrying a sword. And I share with you: if you get really if you're really upset or really jacked up about the whole the fact that they're carrying a weapon, you probably missed the point. Uh, same thing. If, if this really, really, really messes with you, or really, really, if, 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 you're, if you're tempted to make a life verse out of this, let's say, you're like, oh, this is the greatest verse ever. Punch and pull people's hair out, right? You've missed the point. That's not the point. But on the other hand, if you're like, I can't imagine anyone doing this in God's name, you've probably missed the point as well. Think of it this way. What they were doing told the world something untrue about God. What they were doing reflected that they didn't actually know and love God. And so Nehemiah, again, just like the end of Ezra, this is a descriptive story, not a prescriptive, right? This is not like a, hey, this is a really good idea. It's not. You're not Nehemiah. Neither am I. Okay? No pulling out of hair. Okay? That's not, not helpful. But think of it this way. We're confronted with a pretty radical act, aren't we? As if to say what they were doing is serious. 
And the person that God sent to them took it seriously and expressed in some small way the wrath that God has, the anger that God has, the displeasure that God has when families are broken, when they're not formed by God's grace and mercy. And so he sets them straight. He introduces us again to another character. He, he, makes a, he makes a reference, if you see here, back to Solomon. Solomon, even Solomon, the, this great king, what was, what was the foolishness, right? It's all, I love the story of Solomon. It's ironic, right? It's, just, it's like this dramatic irony. Solomon was so wise, and yet he married a bunch of women and rebelled against God. And so you're meant to go like, oh, he's so wise, like, wink, wink, right? Like, wise, in quotes, right? And what was his foolishness? That he thought, I, I can just love whoever I want. I can marry as many women as I want, and it won't affect me. And so he warns them, aren't you just doing the thing that you know you shouldn't do? You're doing the thing that got us exiled in the, in the first place. So let me make some tentative conclusions about this picture. Did you see like, the idea that they were supposed to live in such a way and their experience of renewal would be reflected in their understanding of holiness? And yet, as he recalls that this is exactly what you've been doing, this is exactly what Solomon did, and this is exactly what the people did when they were first exiled into Babylon. Here's what I'll tell you. Our need for renewal is ongoing. If there's anything the story of Ezra and Nehemiah tell us, is that like at any point you would have been like, oh, they fixed it. Sweet. That's all I need to do, right? right? Zerubbabel rebuilds the altar. Oh, that's all we need to do. Done. Ezra rebuilds the temple. Sweet, that's fixed it. Or Nehemiah rebuilt the wall. Oh, it's done. And at no point do you find like a real climax and conclusion. Instead, you see one anti-climax after another. It sure seems like people would get it this time. No, they don't. And their need for renewal is ongoing, and so is ours. We're meant to see here the ongoing nature of how much we need God's presence to inform our lives, to change what we desire, and to be visible in what we worship and what the world sees us doing. Our need for renewal is ongoing. You also see as Nehemiah confronts each of these issues, he tends to put someone in charge and holds them responsible. Whether it's Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, or these people he put in charge to restore the situation, our need for spiritual leadership is ongoing. Our need for God to put people in our lives to encourage us, to build us up, to, to catch us when we fall, to correct us when we wander into foolishness. That need is ongoing. It shows a picture then of how dependent we are and how dependent in this sense we are created to be. Here's the last thing I think we see here in this pattern of need for renewal in these places. God's work of renewal always, from Zerubbabel to Ezra to Nehemiah, always faces adversity. It always does. I think I shared this with you about halfway through Nehemiah. If you start to answer that second question we've been asking, where are you experiencing renewal, right? I want to just say praise God for that, thank God for that, and watch out. Watch out. The enemy would love to stop that in its tracks. The enemy would love to pull you back 
into desperation and despair. The, the enemy would love to pull you back into his grasp rather than experiencing renewal by God's presence. The enemy would love to distract you, would love to, to throw to your life like unholy alliances, relationships, and commitments. Like the enemy would love to distract you because whenever God's work of renewal is taking place, it's evidence of a need for renewal, that is adversity, or adversity results. So, what do we make of all these things? Here we are at the end of this story. And I don't know about you, but it's kind of a downer. Right? Like, I really would love to say, hey, it was, everything's totally fixed. Totally fixed. These guys nailed it. The Lord works through these people in spite of themselves and and then and they and it's and everything ends happily everything ends really well but notice that's not the case this story ends on an anticlimax in many ways even if this is not chronologically in order that is if this actually took place before let's say like chapter 8 9 and 10 that even that Nehemiah did it on purpose it's as if Nehemiah was like not so fast i need to tell you one more story And this story ends with a reminder of how flawed people really are. As well, even in this sense, a view of Nehemiah, God's leader, at his wit's end, losing his temper. And in the end of like accomplishing the task of rebuilding by force, by anger, right? By pulling people's hair out. Like that, right? I don't know about you. That can't be the ending, right? They're like, oh yeah, this is what you got to do. Fix it. Pull their hair out. Go. You know, do likewise, right? Like, there's something in you. He's like, that, that, can't be, that can't be the ending. That can't be the solution. Oh, I know why things are so broken in the world. We're not pulling enough hair out, right? Do you get it? Like, this ends on a downer. You're like, this, this can't be it. And we're reminded of how flawed these people are. And, and we're, in the end, we're, we're seeing Nehemiah accomplishing the task by force and by anger. And you know as well as I do, that only works for a while, right? You only do something you're threatened to do just like for this long, and then you're like, forget that. The people are a disappointment. And Nehemiah is left exasperated. But I want to encourage you. These people were never going to be able to make themselves perfect. And Nehemiah's job was never to be a perfect leader. Nehemiah's job was to prepare the way for the perfect leader that was to come. And Nehemiah reminds us that God uses very imperfect people to work in the world because that's all there are. As a community of renewal, God can use all of these imperfections to point to himself and do amazing things through it. But notice then, the story, if this is how it ends, then the story was never meant to be about a perfect people or a perfect leader. It was meant to prepare and point toward the perfect people and the perfect leader. This story of renewal is meant to point to the person and work of Jesus Christ as he has come. We read this in the Gospel of John, to cleanse the very temple, the dwelling place of God. Remember the story Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he, he gets to the temple and in the outer courts there were, 
There were people selling and buying and taking advantage of the sojourner. They were, they were taking advantage of the people who had traveled and had to purchase an animal to sacrifice. And they were marking up the prices. And they were, they were not only gouging the prices, but they were also marking it up when they were exchanging the currency. And Jesus walked in and, and like only God can do, walks into the temple and purifies it, flips the tables. John tells us he goes into the corner and starts making a cat, a, a whip, a weapon. And so this story of renewal, the the angry of Nehemiah, in the end was ultimately to point us to the person of Jesus and the work that he would accomplish by cleansing the temple, making the dwelling place of God accessible to everyone. Our great and holy high priest has entered into the world. He's come to his people. And I love this part. He's defeated Satan and thrown out his furniture. As if to say, you will never be welcome here again. Don't get comfy here. This is my place. This is my people. And he has come and washed us. And he has made us clean. He has made us members of his holy temple. Because he has gained for us a right and true Sabbath rest that we could never attain on our own. And so we respond to that kind of mercy with the declaration we saw a chapter ago. Oh, we're never going to neglect that. We're never going to neglect what God has done for us. And we believe and we hold to this confession that we are redeemed from exile just like these people and we are set apart, made holy by the purifying and renewing work of Jesus. This trek through Ezra and Nehemiah is not meant to encourage you to try harder or do more. It's funny, it ends on a Sabbath, a day where you're meant to do nothing. Nothing but trust and rest in all that God has done for us. And this story of exile and renewal is meant to warm our hearts for the exile that we have been drawn out of that is sin and death and the new and set-apart life that we have in Christ. Friend, don't miss this. This story, this this repetitive story of how difficult the world can be and yet how God works in the midst of it to redeem a people for for himself and his own purpose is a story we're meant to be encouraged by. It's a story we celebrate in Advent. That God didn't leave us in exile, but he sent his own son to live a perfect life you and I could never live. To die a death that you and I deserve. Don't you love that? Like, Don't you love Jesus more than Nehemiah? Right? I mean, leader comes in and beats people up. And Jesus comes in and takes the beating. And he was raised on the third day. So that now we have perfect rest. We understand what it means to be set aside by God's perfect patience. See this story as not a story from thousands of years ago, but a story that you and I are invited to, to experience renewal, even right now, even right here. Let's thank God and ask for that to happen. Jesus, thank you so much that you, our perfect high priest, have come and purified the temple. And we know now that the temple of God, the very presence of God, is in the people of God. We know that you have seen fit to make us your people and for us to see you as our God. Thank you that you have come by your spirit to dwell in us because of Jesus. You have purified us and made us holy, not because we deserve it and not because we are particularly good at anything, but because you are merciful. And it is your good pleasure to display to us and to the world your love and your patience. 
God, for some of us in this room, that seems like a, a story too far away. Maybe for some in this room that wouldn't call themselves believers, might day, today be the day that they, they turn and trust. They, they place faith in this God who comes to be with us in Jesus. The God who comes down into the lowly and takes the filth and takes the impurity on himself to make us right. May we receive that today by faith. And maybe for the rest of us, we've heard this story. We, maybe we know it. We've been changed by it. But we regularly invite and welcome other things. In places in our lives, we just look like the world in our commitments and our relationships and our view of the family and a view of our time. We just look like we worship everything else. God, even today, would you show us that you've set us apart to display your glory and grace that we would experience it deeply in ourselves and that the people around us would see it and experience it as well. Thank you for this holy and high calling. In Jesus' name, amen.